welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. If you like what you hear today, please rate and review kindly. This show is a series of conversations with educators and learners to try and deconstruct some of the stereotypes around education. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. Welcome back to the first conversation of 2021. I have an incredible conversation and chat for you today with Dr. Mary Hemphill. We originally connected through Instagram. Mary added me and her handle is the Limitless Lady and I just loved it so much. So I began chatting to her through Instagram. We had these really inspiring conversations and to be perfectly honest, I'm kind of glad I didn't know how impressive she was originally because I was very honest and open and perhaps a little bit bold. And in fact, I might not have been so forthright had I realized the experience that Mary had. And as we were chatting and I saw what she was posting on Instagram, I thought, oh, what is this? You know, what is this woman's deal? And so I realized that she was not only a teacher, but a principal and a really big change maker in education, in North Carolina. She was given the opportunity of really overhauling very challenging schools, difficult schools, and through the district, allowing her to kind of throw the rule book out a little bit in order to do what she believed was best practice and what was best for the students. And in that process, she came up with something called the One Minute Meeting. And she's written a book about that. I've read it. And I honestly am not huge for educational research type literature I find it can be very dry and it it can be really challenging to keep me engaged and I read this book cover to cover in a week it literally feels as though you are walking alongside her there's this real narrative element to it like you are walking into the stadium with her when she addresses the staff when you're in the meetings with the students and I really love the fact that there's so much storytelling within this educational landscape and there is a lot of how-tos you know she gives you really great step-by-step protocols as to how to implement the one minute meeting with different year levels and what questions to ask and how to go about it there's even a part about how to deal with this in a pandemic so you know she really has all of her bases covered and as I said if you are not really into educational literature I will tell you what this is a really really good read and if you are you'll love it and I will say she has always been incredibly generous when we were chatting she's like I'd like to collaborate with you maybe we should organize a time to meet and in North Carolina that meant that the time difference was a bit of a challenge so she was getting up really really early in the morning and I was going to the meeting quite late and our first chat I said to her you know I just find you so impressive and she said you know what? I find you impressive and I thought but I'm just a teacher in the classroom and I think that I couldn't see maybe what she could see in me and I think that's what makes her such an incredible leader because she can see the passion and where people fit in the system and how they can be best utilized and even myself she could see that in me from the very beginning and I really really appreciated her perspective and I think that that's what makes her such a beautiful leader because she doesn't make it about her it's not ego it's all about students and teachers and how she can get the best out of everybody and ensure that everybody's happy and I love that she makes the comment that she became a filter between herself and the district and her superintendent to ensure that she protected her 
staff rather than trying to impress you know the people bigger than her in terms of the roles or more important you know I say that in inverted commas the roles that may have been at her in terms of what they wanted her to do she was very protective and she stood her ground and I'm just so beyond impressed that her values have always maintained the way that she has dealt with anything in education and she now has this incredible role she is a CEO of her own company the limitless leader company and most recently she was actually called by the district to ask her to become the first state director of computer science and technology education and she's ultimately like just a huge change maker in education and I love what she says she's very very outspoken everything that she says to me I'm like yes 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 I could have spoken to her for ages in fact she had to cut me off because I just wanted to talk to her all day but I know that you'll love this conversation Go and check her out at The Limitless Lady on Instagram. I'll have all of her information in the show notes. She's literally just a bright spark of golden light in education, in leadership, in the way that we, I think many educators at least, would like to move to support our students a lot more. So here is my conversation with Dr. Mary. Hello, Mary. How are you? I'm doing great, Laura. How are you doing? Really, really good. Thank you. I'd love to start at the beginning and ask you to reflect on your time in the education system as a student. Oh, okay, absolutely. Well, let me tell you, just from the first time I stepped foot into a school, I was so excited because my family and my parents had always talked about, you know, being ready for your first day of school. And I was the student who would like, or the child who would play with my dolls and like set up a fake classroom in my playroom. So, and I was like writing lesson plans when I was like four, teaching alphabet. So when I was a student, I was eager to get there. I was eager to learn. And I will always remember my kindergarten teacher, Miss Tyson, who during nap time, I, I asked my mom, I was like, why are you sending me to school to sleep? Mm-hmm. Like I've spent all this time getting ready to go to school. And Miss Tyson recognized that I wasn't like napping. Mm-hmm. So she started a word box for me. And we every time the other students would lay down for their nap, I would go to the back table with her and we would start with words and she would put my words that I had learned in this little box she made and we moved from words to sentences to like writing whole stories in kindergarten and so as a student I was always like searching for and looking for more and trying to connect with those adults who would see me for me and I never forgot that experience even after I returned to the same school in the same classroom I had been a student in. As a teacher? Yeah. And can you describe yourself as a teacher? Oh, gosh. As a teacher, I will say that I always wanted to remember that I sat where my students sat. Mm. I always wanted to make sure that I made their experience something that brought me joy. And so I knew if the students were having fun, right? Or if they were seeing themselves in the learning, they didn't matter if it was social studies, science, math, or technology, if they could see themselves and their future selves as a part of it, I knew that we would have an amazing experience, especially for me as a teacher. And so what was your specialty as a teacher? Like what sort of grades did you teach? I taught third and fourth grade for five years, and I'm so sorry about my puppy. (laughs) Um, I taught third and fourth grade for five years, and I actually looped my students. 
So I was able to take them from third grade and then I stayed with them through fourth and then I looped back and I started with a new group. Do you think that's a good idea to keep your students for that length of time? I do believe in looping. I, I believe you're able to really develop amazing relationships with students and their parents and families. So you've just published your first book called The One Minute Meeting, Creating Student Stakeholders. Can you tell me about the experience that inspired this book? Absolutely. So I had the amazing pleasure of serving my region. So in our state of North Carolina, we have regions and they recognize a principal of the year for each region. Well, this particular year, we were all invited to a luncheon and the state superintendent at the time, who is the superintendent over all the schools, talked to us about sharing best practices. And she said, all the principals in this room, you're here for a reason. I want you to share something that you feel has made an amazing impact on your students. Well, when it came to be um, you know, my turn, I shared about the one minute meeting. And she pulled me aside after the, the luncheon. And she said, Mary, I really, really want to come to your school and I want to see the one minute meeting in action. I want to see what it is you're doing with your students. And we had been doing this for a year now and just getting amazing results from our students. It wasn't until she came and she was able to shine a statewide spotlight on this process. Other principals started reaching out to me and calling me and talking about what is this one minute meeting? How are you meeting with every child in the school? Like, how are you even making it all this possible that it was evident to me that I needed to like write this down and make it replicable for other principals and school leaders and teacher leaders who wanted to make a shift. And it's amazing how I arrived in education. I was like, just do the best you can for students. And I quickly realized that we were doing what felt good to us as adults versus like asking our students, do you even like what we're doing? Is this impacting you in any way? And so when we made that mindset shift and invited our students to the table, we got amazing results and responses and were able to shine a light on things we never would have thought of otherwise. Can you explain why you were able to do something or the idea you had to do something so different at this particular school? I mean, what kind of school were you walking into when you were offered this principal uh-huh. role? Is that you offered? You, how, how does that work with principals in um, North Carolina? So in North Carolina, for instance, we really work off of recruiting. So I absolutely, mm-hmm. I came from a school, the, the school I described was very much like FT Elementary in the book. It was a school that didn't have a lot of resources. And when I say resources, I mean fiscal resources. It was a school Mm -hmm. that wasn't in the most brand new building. It was a pretty old building built probably in the 60s or 70s. And it was a school that, even though it was in, in the community, it was a school that a lot of people, the parents, the students, even some of the teachers didn't believe in. And I believe that is definitely where I thrive because I was a student in a school that a lot of people didn't believe in. I was a teacher in a school that a lot of people didn't believe in. And so when you walk into a building and the state has put an F on your forehead. So in North Carolina, every school gets a grade at the end of the year based on how well you did in performance and how well you're doing as a school. So we literally, it felt like we had this big F on our forehead because the report Mm. card had just come out. Hey, you can see it in the teacher's faces. I mean, it's not like they're skipping down the road, excited to go to work when the community believes it's a failing school. And I always think about, put myself in the shoes of my students. What do they hear in their parents say about the school? 
what are they hearing their friends say about the school? So it was a school that was at the bottom. Laura, we had 22% of our students passing. That's mm. less, that's dismally less than half. Yes. Something had to be done. We had to do things differently. We didn't have a choice. Mm. Mm. And how did you get that role to be principal there? Um, I was recruited. I had just worked in a school and turned that school around using some of the same uh, strategies, including mm-hmm. the one minute meeting. And this was a community school that I had been at prior that brought in four different communities from different parts of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And we had worked to change the instruction. We had worked to shift our approach. And we did things at that school that we, that we wanted to do to engage our students. So myself, my assistant principal, for, for instance, challenged our students to read 10,000 minutes. Mm. Remember, this was a school that was before the, the FT elementary. This was also a school that was failing, mm. low socioeconomic, so lots of black and brown students, and their reading scores were just dismal. Mm. So we challenged our students to read 10,000 minutes. They exceeded it. They ended up reading 16 to 17,000 minutes. And we promised our students that if they did that, I would dress up as Hermione and my assistant principal would dress up like Harry Potter and we would read to them from the roof of our school. And we climbed up on the roof as Harry Potter and Hermione and the whole student body gathered on the ground and we read to them out of like a karaoke machine Mm -hmm. and they got popcorn and drinks and they just watched us like soar literally we soared to the roof and read to them those are the types of things that you have to do to create memorable positive experiences for students who haven't had that in a while yeah so you talk about the idea of grading Mm -hmm. we don't do that in australia so can you explain to me how a school is graded okay so that's a great question So when you look at a school report card grade in in North Carolina, it is 80% performance and 20% proficiency. So you're looking at your students who take standardized tests and 80% of that score, that letter grade, comes from how they perform. Did they pass? And based on your number of students who are eligible to test, they will take that score and the number of students who actually perform well on the standardized test and pass either with a three, four, or five. So we're on a five-point scale. And then they multiply that times 80 to get that part of the score. The 20% is for proficiency, which it means how well are you doing based on last year? So to get an F, means that you have to have way less than um, than half of the number of students in your school that are performing and even less than that that are proficient, which means from year to year to year, they're able to perform. And as I said, we were at 22%. So we were at no, we were nowhere near being able to have the number of students we needed in order to even come out average, which was at a C. The fact is that these letter grades are published. Everyone knows what your score is in the community and you talk about like I think it's like the the shopping center talk or the water cooler talk and everyone's having these conversations about this school failing and having this letter Mm -hmm. grade and my understanding too in America is that if you are zoned for particular schools you really don't have much choice so you have to send your child to a school that you don't believe in 
what kind of impact does that have? And do you think this is a good way of doing it? Well, okay. So your first question is, how does that impact? It deep-rooted impacts, particularly in communities where there's not a lot of resources. Mm. So, for instance, when people move into the state, or when, particularly in North Carolina, and I can only speak for North Carolina because this is where I've lived my whole life. Mm-hmm. One of the first questions we start to ask when we buy a house, when we find a house that we love or a property that we love, we ask the realtor, how are the schools? Mm. Because you want to make sure you're sending your child to a school that is thriving, has programming, has resources, has parent support, and a great principal and teachers who love kids. And so when we got that F and it was published in the local paper and the headlines, you know, and the Facebook starts blowing up and social media. And right now we live in a time, Laura, where everyone has an opinion. Mm -hmm. It spreads like wildfire. Mm -hmm. And we were in one of the smaller towns here in North Carolina. So it wasn't like a metropolis. So word spread quickly. I will remember I was standing there greeting my parents for parent night, which is kind of like the preview before we start the school year. And I was a new principal. A lot of parents hadn't met me yet. And one one parent, one mom walked in and she said, you know, if I had the money and the resources to move, I would move tomorrow so that my child wouldn't have to go to the school. Wow. And, you know, you're, you're standing there and you're the new principal and you're super hopeful. And you're super excited. And you know the work that has gone into the year to like prepare. And you wish in that moment you could just take a crystal ball and be like, no, look, it's, we're going to change it. We're going to change it yeah. together. But you can't. And so what do you do? It is one positive experience after another. And you continue to be consistent. And you greet them in the car line with a smile. And you make sure teachers are prepared at parent-teacher conferences. And you learn their child's name and what they love. And over time, we took our parents and our community on a journey to where they said to me, the same mom who I ended up making the PTA president, by the way. Um, (laughs) She said, there's no other place I want my child to grow up and learn. This is the school and I'm so glad we never left. Wow. (laughs) The other part of that question I wanted to ask was the fairness of that judgment with that letter grade. What do you think Hmm. about that? It is absolutely positively not fair, Laura, you know, and, and I, I, there's lots of like research out there and lots of advocacy groups that are working against that. But here's the thing. Once you get into a proficient scale to where your students are actually performing and doing well, because you're based on a year before, an yeah. F school would literally have to make between 80 to 90% growth just to see the horizon of a new letter grade. Yes. Because think about it. The same scale is used for a school of 1,200 students that is used for a school of 400 students. Mm -hmm. And if all 400 of my students come from affluent communities where the parents take them to France on holiday and they talk to them and have enriching discussions, and I'm using the same scale for students whose parents are in and out of jail, for parents who speak a second language, like We're comparing apples and pineapples. That's right. So absolutely not fair because schools get into a rut. Yeah. And to get out of that rut, do you know the type of momentum you have to have to get out of that rut and push 80 to 90% of your students to proficiency? 
it's insane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, obviously, it's why people like you come in and do drastic things, right? Yeah. It's the only way to do it. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I talk about in the book, we did get 86% growth that first year. And we got 89% growth the next year. But Laura, it wasn't, it was it, the one minute meeting was the first step, but I had to have teachers putting feet to that vision, parents and community members putting feet to that vision. And we also had a district that was like, go do it. Think outside the box. You know what? Don't think outside the box. Get rid of the box. Just go. And yeah. when you have that type of support, you can make the change, but it takes everybody. Yeah. I'd love to hear you talk about that first meeting you describe in the book where everyone's kind of coming in and you have created almost like a cruise ship yeah. feel uh-huh. and you're the captain and it's, I love you create a real imagery of um, this kind of show that you're putting on to try and encourage staff to believe yeah. in the school and you so boldly have a whiteboard with a cover on it saying we're going to turn this school from an F and then you you change that letter into an A. Yeah. I love to know how confident were you that you oh could my. deliver that I was sitting like, there going, oh, she's gutsy. <laughs> That's what I thought when I was reading it. You're so funny. Well, honestly, and I love reliving that moment because here's the thing. When you work in a small community and you've been at a school for years, you kind of have a narrative in your in your head mm-hmm. because these teachers who are amazing leaders, wonderful professional experts had already been through two principal changes by the time I arrived. We had to create a new storyline yeah. because the newspaper article came out two days before we welcomed them back. Facebook was going crazy. And the teachers hadn't had a whole lot of time to sort of grapple with, how do I get my classroom set up? How do I get textbooks checked in? And just to get ready to go back to a failing school. So we did, we literally rolled out the red carpet and we turned on the music and we called and we we called everybody's names and their accomplishments from last year and they danced down the red carpet. And I'm standing there and I'm like, okay, you know, this F behind me, is real. It's something that I can't erase. And here's the thing, Laura, school leaders, my my heart will always stand with them because when you're a new school leader, you have to answer to solve and respond to issues that were created before you ever got the job. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I'm standing there with this F, like hugged up with this F, like, I know. I didn't create it, but we're going to fix it, you know? (laughs) Yes. I said this could either go two ways. They can either think I'm like the cheesiest, like, educational magician where I'm just like, ignore the F behind the curtain, or Mm. they are going to literally walk with me through this journey and say, let's create a new narrative. And yes, I know what it says in terms of the circumstances. And I know what people are saying, but I'm standing with you. I'm standing beside you. I'm going to give you tools so that we can start to address it and shift it. But it's going to take some time. We're going to have to celebrate small wins and we're going to have to do it together. And even though I'm, my palms were sweating, honestly, Laura, mm-hmm. like if I had cracked, I would have lost them. 
because they yeah. had already, they were already suffering PTSD. They'd already heard the dream. They'd already mm. seen like new principles come in with the dreams of grandeur and fail. They yeah. already had the school turned upside down by students who had behavior issues, but were never disciplined. Parents cursing at them. So I couldn't, I didn't have time to be scared. Right. Yeah. And so once I drew that line and made that F and A, and I saw the first teachers like lights, like come back on, it was almost like, she was like, okay, I'm back home. I remember now why I did this. And one by one, they just started standing and clapping and cheering and some were crying and we were just in it together. And I was like, let's go, let's do this. Yeah. So you've been at schools, difficult schools, Mm -hmm. and you've had a lot of success turning them around. I wonder if it's just as challenging stepping into a successful school as a leader. What do you think about that? What kind of leader would you be, do you think, if you walked into a really successful school that had a good reputation? Mm -hmm. How do you lead that kind of a school? I think the conversation is different, but I think the conversation is that if you want to make sure that a school is in a perpetual beta, always looking Mm. for continuous improvement, Mm. I always think about and put myself back on the continuum of, I was an AIG student, right? A lot of times academically and intellectually gifted. Okay. So, (laughs) I like it. Yeah. Yeah, So, so those, those thank you. (laughs) Thank you. But, but those are actual like classes that we offer to students yeah. who test there, right? I always would have my teachers give me more work versus going deeper into the work. And so mm. for, for the AIG students, it would be, we would finish faster. We would get most of the questions right. And then the teacher would be like, okay, we'll just go read six more chapters because you're finished early. But no, like I want to learn more. So I think the conversation for a school that's super successful is, yes, you're at the end of the continuum when it comes to success. Your students are doing great. But how can we go deeper? How can we take Mm -hmm. these science lessons and enrich them with free courses, you know, from Harvard University on stem cell research and cybersecurity? And how can we take gamification with our students and create like mind modules for the students who are doing well. And parents, what do you do for a living? Can we bring you in and and really why career day when it could be career month and we can attach you to a content teacher. And if you teach philosophy, pair with an English teacher and start creating classes where students can present in the um, Socratic method, you know? So I think it would be a challenge, but it would be a challenge on the on the opposite end of the continuum to ask deeper questions, to ask to put learning in the students' hands and really hold parents and community accountable for getting in those classrooms and helping with that process. I love that so much. I actually think that so many leaders would come into a high-performing school and be scared to change anything. So I love that you're looking at already, you don't have to change what's going on, but you can enrich. I love that. Absolutely. And, And I'm not sure if you've heard about, have you heard of Genius Hour? No, I haven't, but I'm so excited to hear that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so this was something that I learned about from Google. 
So Google operates off of an 80-20 rule. Mm-hmm. So 80% of the time we work, 20% of the time we play. Mm-hmm. Well, during that opportunity where they literally tell their employees, like, go like play foosball or go take a nap or go tinker, they create a genius hour, which is one hour where students get to choose their passion and they get to research, they get to tinker, they get to discover, they get to enrich themselves, they get to play. So we implemented Genius Hour in our elementary school. And we asked our staff and stu- our, our staff and our teachers. And we, I'm, I'm talking about guidance counselors. We asked our media coordinator, our teachers, everybody, what are you interested in? And we had some teachers interested in horseback riding, chess, cross-stitch, cybersecurity, coding, and Minecraft. And we paired them up. So if you and I were both um, love chess, you and I would become the chess genius hour masters or mm-hmm. teachers or whatnot. Then we gave students the opportunity to pick three of their likes, three things that they would love to be enriched in. And we gave students an opportunity to sign up. So if they signed up for our chess hour, it didn't matter if they were in kindergarten, fourth grade, fifth grade, they would come to us during this one hour. And you and I would work together to teach them how to play chess. Mm. We would talk about algorithms and formulas. We would bring all the math concepts in it. And what happened was with our school of 450 students for that hour, we not only developed relationships Mm. because students now in kindergarten, and yes, we had two kindergartners in our chess club that were phenomenal. Mm -hmm. But think about it. Our fifth grade teachers knew our kindergarten babies and our third grade students knew the guidance counselor and the PE teacher because we gave them choice, mm. they were so enthralled in it. We enriched the conversation. Yep. At the end of Genius Hour, our students made slide deck presentations and did pitch competitions about what they had learned. It was amazing mm. to be able to connect content to student choice. And Genius Hour is just that. One hour where you empower teachers, you empower students, you create relationships. And when you walk around the school and you hear that educational buzz about five-year-olds talking about cross-stitching and you see fifth graders learning just all types of different things about atlases and maps, we had a geography club, that's learning. That's what the real world looks like. You choose something, you go after it and you learn more about it. But we did it within a school and the students loved it. And you match passion with passion. Absolutely. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. Yeah, that's huge. And I think it's much more real world, isn't it? Because I think that there seems to be a lot of disengagement with students because there's the I have to do Mm -hmm. rather Mm -hmm. than I want to do or I choose to do. And I think shifting that is big because I even if you have to do certain things, you know that there's something that you want to do that you're looking forward to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and they loved it. And Laura, we use that hour because so much of what we do in school, we tell students what to do. Mm-hmm. We're like, yeah. here's your schedule and here's your notebook and you got to use this color pen. We got to take the reins off a little bit and let them see that strategically life is about choosing a passion, choosing your calling. And you go after it, you research, you work, you get credentials, you go to school or you just go to school of life and you try mm-hmm. it out. And when you meet passion with passion, oh man, like the sky's the limit. And here's the thing for the teachers too, yeah. they chose what they were interested in. You know, I wasn't like, can you please teach fourth grade math? And they're like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. 
No, we <laughs> we gave them an opportunity to choose as well. So when when you have that, that's a double win, and you have choice on both sides. I was just going to ask you as well from the teacher's perspective. How do you encourage teachers to teach from a place of love and joy? And I think you're already mm-hmm. starting on this. Mm-hmm. When we are so bogged down and measured and held accountable to those external tests and scores. So is this uh-huh. one way or are there other ways? Yeah, absolutely. So here's the thing. School leaders, particularly as you lead and guide teacher leaders, I always considered myself selectively permeable. And you learn about like in biology. Because I love that I'm a biology teacher. (laughs) You know, selectively permeable cells, they choose what they let through. I had to be very transparent with my superintendent and my teachers. And I I said, everything that comes in, it's going to hit me first. And everything that comes in, district initiatives, mandates, all this, I'm going to decide what it is that you have the capacity and the bandwidth to hold. Because if I keep putting things in your hands and stuff is spilling out on the side or you forget it or you're walking down the hall and you can't carry that load and you just drop it off, it'll make no impact on our students. Yeah. So as the selectively permeable membrane for my building, for my teachers, I always stood in the gap for them. And I said, I'm not going to give you more than you can carry. I'm also not going to give you more than you can master. Because if I give you more than you can master and you're only mediocre at this, this, and this, then that's even less that my students are going to learn, less that our students are going to be engaged, and the less that they're actually going to believe that you believe what you're teaching them. Mm -hmm. So I was very explicit with our superintendent and I said, if you want me to get reading and math scores up, then anything that doesn't look like reading and math. It can't happen. Yeah. Because I can't I can't soar in the social studies. I can't go to the quiz bowls for science. I can't, but I can make it work if you allow my teachers to become masters of a few things versus mediocre at many things. Mm. And that's exactly what happened. Yes, it was a very unpopular opinion. Yes, it was a couple of times crucial conversations with my supervisors and to other teachers. But what happened was teachers actually experienced success. And there is no way that you can have a turnaround school or success with students unless your teachers are experiencing success consistently. Mm. I'm not saying we weren't going to fail. But what I'm saying is that that failure was at least productive in terms of us turning it around and saying, okay, we won't do that again. I pledge to you, we won't do that again because it's not good for you and it's not good for kids. Yeah. It's really interesting you say that because I think as a teacher of 10, 12 years, Mm -hmm. I've seen so many times initiatives brought in with great intentions from departments, from Mm -hmm. external bodies, and we get excited about them. There's a limited amount of funding potentially, limited time frame. Within a year to two years, the direction's really not clear and mm-hmm. chaos comes in. And so I think that I've certainly found the longer I've been in the profession, the less I'm willing to take up some of those things because I know that it probably won't end up finalized or finished or right. in right. a place where I feel as though it's been fully rounded out. 
It's sort mm-hmm. of started and left by the wayside. And I know that I'm not alone in thinking that. So how yeah. do we encourage staff to want to take on programs and give them the time and space, I suppose, to finish out their goals in programs like that? Mm-hmm. So I love that you said that. So it's a couple of things, Laura. I call that what you just described, the revival effect. Mm-hmm. It's like, for instance, if you go to a revival, like a church, or if you go to like an amazing concert, or you go to see like a live performance, you're in the moment and you're like, this is amazing. I'm yeah. so like, I just feel so full. But like after the curtain closes, after you get home, after you get back to the reality of your classroom, it's like that feeling is gone. So one of the things that we did to really elevate our teachers as professional experts is you have to make sure that you're finding ways and specifically ways that your teacher leaders shine in the building and then leveraging that expertise throughout the rest of the context of like your goals. So for instance, if I had a teacher who was great at Google Suite. So she could teach her students slide decks. She was in there using Google Docs for editing of research papers. I literally would observe that teacher. I would have my assistant principal or vice principal observe that teacher. And that teacher would earn a badge, a Google Suite badge over her door because she consistently in teaching and learning was able to engage her students in Google Suite. So you know what would happen if I would go into, say, a teacher's classroom and she was just struggling with technology? She's using PowerPoints, death by PowerPoint, too many words on the screen. Yep. Her students, her, their devices are all over the place. She's not sure how to engage them. I would say, you know what, Ms. Thompson, I'm going to cover your class for 30 minutes. I want you to go find a teacher who has a Google Suite badge or an engagement badge or a classroom management badge over their door. I just want you to observe. And I would literally hand them a post-it note and a pen and just write down what you see. Write down what the students are doing. Write down what the teacher's doing. And I just want you to observe. We did two things there. We elevated that teacher who had the badge as an expert in the building. And we removed excuses for the teacher who was struggling because a lot of times teachers say, well, I I just can't do it with these kids. Okay, no, there's literally somebody right down the hall who's like (laughs) doing it. And I would encourage them to have a conversation with that teacher on their own time when they found time. We would come back, that teacher would go back to teach in her classroom, and I would find time at the end of the day or schedule a time and talk with the teacher. What did you see? How can I help you put this system in place in your classroom? Listen, checklists don't change teachers. Conversations grow teachers. Mm -hmm. But when you're able to do it in your building, we just built a community and a relationship between those two teachers and gave her an incentive to be able to want to learn. So- We moved away from the revival effect of just feeling good for the moment by aligning what we were doing with our goals, using our people, our amazing people in our building to create more amazing opportunities for students. And I think that's how we kind of moved away from just feeling good for the moment and getting sustainable, relatable change, but also making sure we're developing relationships with our people. Can I just say the fact that you in that moment gave your staff member or your teacher an opportunity to leave the classroom knowing that you had it, that I've got this, you go and do what you need to do. I'm not going to make you do this outside of your time. This is your allotted time. I'm going to give you and award you time. From a teacher's perspective, that is the most incredible thing that I've heard from, from a leader. 
to say, I'm not going to make you go above and beyond. I'm actually going to give you time by showing you that I'm investing my time in you. Mm. And that's really powerful. Like when you were, I, I loved the whole story, but I actually stopped when you said, I gave my teacher the opportunity in her time that she already knew she was going to be teaching rather than another time she had to find or he had to find. Mm. That's really powerful for leadership to do. Thank you, Bora. And but and here's the thing, and I appreciate you saying that. Time is literally the most precious commodity we mm-hmm. have. Mm-hmm. We can't build any other time into the master schedule. And so that was the second thing I was going to say. School leaders, if we want the type of change I talk about in the book, you got to use your time differently. Yeah. Okay. You got to look at that day. And so one of the things we did is we looked at the master schedule. And one of the things that we really work to do is two things, remove excuses and breaks in Mm -hmm. any of the instructional core. So that means that my, my EC, which are our exceptional children and our AIG, our academically intellectually gifted students, I didn't break their learning to be pulled out of the classroom for enrichment. So that means that they were in reading or math. Remember, those were our areas. We protected it as much as possible. Mm. We even communicated with our parents and our um, community members. And we said, if you have to schedule an appointment, can you schedule it around their block? We posted the block for kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth, fifth in the main office. But we also sent it home. And we said, parents, fifth graders are reading and math from 12 to 2. Please try not to do appointments. And then if a parent did that, you know what I would say? I would give my, my secretary and my vice principal permission to say, we're going to let him go this time. But mom, please, the orthodontics can tighten her braces after math. Mm. After so many times, our community started to respect that we were doing that. And then the second thing we did was I moved. I don't know if in Australia you have PLTs or PLCs, professional learning teams or we professional do. learning professional teams. Learning. Yes, we do. So we would make sure that all of our teachers had two hours of planning every single week, not just with their grade level. So if you taught third grade, you not only had two hours with third grade, we bridged you. And we said, kindergarten and first grade, you're going to have your teacher time together because first grade teachers were always saying, I wish those kindergarten teachers would make sure. And (laughs) kindergarten teachers were like, what do they need to know? So you had two hours to plan in what I call bridge teams, K1, 2, 3, and 4, 5. We did data mining and we looked at student work together. And for two hours, our teams were able to plan. And what we found is that the second grade teachers were sending stronger readers to third grade. Mm -hmm. And the fourth grade teachers were sending stronger scientists to fifth grade because we intentionally created a master schedule where they could do that. Yeah. The next thing I wanted to ask is how do you measure a good teacher? Mm. (laughs) I love that question. A good teacher for me is a teacher who is still a student himself or herself. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is I don't need anybody to like put on a show when I come to the classroom, right? Mm Because if it's a show, you know, the first thing that's going to tell on a teacher is the students. They're going to be like, we don't normally do this. So (laughs) so I I love going to classrooms where 
I walk in and it takes me a second to find the teacher because the teacher is so immersed in the learning. There's an educational hum. All the students are deeply engaged in what's happening. But also as teacher who during a lesson or an observation, a student asks a question and a teacher's like, you know what? That's a great question. Let's find out the answer together. And they pivot. And they're pulling up Google and they're looking at devices and software. And I see them showing their students how they're still learning. Mm -hmm. A great teacher doesn't have everything figured out. That's not what life is about. That's not what teaching is about. But a great teacher teaches their students that when I don't know, here's the process I go through to find out. When I have a problem, here's the process I go through to solve it. When I celebrate learning, here is how I elevate my mind and really make sure that I I come out of this with lessons learned. That's a great teacher, a teacher who is not checking off the list, but having conversation, a teacher who doesn't have everything figured out, but is a problem solver. When do you decide that that's what a great teacher was? Uh, When I myself, I think... (laughs) graduated from an amazing prep program Mm -hmm. and I got into the classroom and I realized that only about 10% of what I learned in that program was going to be applicable to me on day one. Yes. And I thought to myself, okay, it's go time. Mm -hmm. Like there's no book. I've got these students over here who don't speak English, this student here who is autistic, this student here who's reading on a sixth grade reading level. And I don't know which one of my notebooks from college has got all this in it, right? Like, I don't know where to go. And I said, this is where I have to either show my students how to problem solve and figure out how to get the sixth grade reader, the behavior student, the autistic student, and it's all at the same finish line at the same time. And that just looks differently. I have to think on my feet. And that's when I realized, I said to myself then, when I become a principal, I never want to forget what it's like to stand in these stilettos or stand in these shoes as a teacher. Yeah. And I pledge that to myself and to know that look on a teacher's face when they're like, I just need to go to the bathroom because I can't think about multiplication if I can't go to the restroom. (laughs) And so to be a teacher and I'd be like, do you need a bathroom break? Go. Like, Mm -hmm. I got this. Go. Mm -hmm. And they were just like, thank you. Yeah. When, when you can remember those experiences that I re- you make me remember how to be a great leader. Mm. And then I never wanted to forget when I became assistant principal, I said, I'm never going to forget what it's like to be a teacher. When I became a principal, I said, I never want to forget what it's like to be a vice principal and a teacher. And now as a state director, I don't want to forget what it's like to be all those things. Yeah. And I want to plan for and sit, sit at the table and advocate for those people who aren't at the table, mm. but still have a voice. Yeah. You made the comment about the fact that you started in your first day in the classroom, qualified, yet didn't have all the tools. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about the way teachers are trained and how we could do it better? Oh, my goodness. So, so many things run through my head when I think about that. Yeah. The first thing is there's got to be an opportunity where EPPs, and we call it EPPs, educational prep programs. are able to immerse teachers or soon to be teachers in the continuum of understanding that there are so many schools out there. Mm. Sending teachers, teachers to be 
to an affluent school that is thriving where the parents drive Mercedes and they all the moms are able to come and spend half a day in the building and then take them and put them in a school that has not a lot of resources and not the best building where you don't see the parents that you need to see desperately every single day where the teachers don't understand and and watch them problem solve so many times we allow teachers to like pick and choose the community pick and choose the type of student yeah. pick and choose it no and 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 take that math student and put them in an english classroom because at the end of the day Laura when you're hired you're going to go where there's the most need and it may be a math classroom but you may have to teach a section of english what are you going to do yeah and put them around principals in the elementary, middle, and high. Don't just give them a high school student and think that that's going to be it because they're going to find themselves in a second grade classroom one day. Like, I don't know what to do with these little people. Yeah. And the more we can do that and be real about it and talk about things like, what are you going to do when you have a child come to you who's hard of hearing and you yourself don't have any disabilities? Or put them in a room with children who have seen their parents like arrested in their home. And how do you deal with emotional trauma and let them sit and go through suicide prevention? What are you going to do when they lose a student? We have to bring the real world into our teachers who are getting ready to go to the field so that when they get there, they're not sticker shocked. And then Mm -hmm. we lose them because they can't handle the reality of what's happening to our children. And the more we do that and the more we're real with them and give them tools to Mm -hmm. be successful, we can change the teaching profession. We can change the educational profession because right now I feel like we are setting so many up to fail. A hundred percent. And I think we academiaize, if that's a word, I don't know if that's the right Mm -hmm. word. You've made it one and I love it. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But we, we do, we make it so academic and we look at things through case studies and Mm -hmm. Teaching is all about connection, relationship, and emotion. And none of that seems to be in the way we train teachers. And the small amount of time that we're in classrooms, like we, I did a diploma of education, which means that I had a one year, mm-hmm. one year of education. I did everything else, um, was my undergrad, which was my methods. Oh, so wow. I had 10 weeks in one year in the classroom and I was out. And I actually think that degrees, which is where you do it for much longer, Mm -hmm. their teaching rounds just sort of build. So they're in for five days in the first year and maybe two weeks. Oh, my. So my feeling is that something like a traineeship where you're in for like a term Mm -hmm. or maybe the idea that, you know, student teachers actually come in to different schools for a term and work with staff and build programs with staff and I don't know. I just think that would be so good to have them in the school. Plus it would then free up time for teachers mm-hmm. as well. I just think that there would be a really nice, yeah, um, symbiotic relationship there if uh-huh. we could get if we could get trainee teachers in schools working with teachers and kids. Absolutely. And here's a here's a novel idea. Are you familiar with project based learning? Yes. Okay. What if we and the, and here's the thing. So I'm always about backwards learning, backwards planning. So Mm -hmm. even with the one minute meeting, I was like, we are not starting with our end user. We are literally starting with adults who have created like text and telling us how to teach versus asking students. Mm. But the same way that we ask our teachers to differentiate for your students, differentiate for your students, meet them where they are. What if we could turn that on its head and meet our teachers where they are 
give teachers who are in educational prep programs a project-based learning module for their entire internship and say, here's Mm. the problem. Work backwards over this next term or semester. We're going to put you in a school and Mm. we're going to let you figure it out. We're going to let you talk to parents. We're going to let you talk to teachers. We're going to give you resources, let you roam and do observations and put it all together. And then you come back with us with a bird's eye view of what you learned. And if we were to able to literally teach teachers the way we teach students, think about the possibilities of project-based preparation for our students who are learning to be teachers to work their way through an entire school year in a building, what they would see, what they would come back with, the data that they would, which would be, which I'm, I'm guarantee you would rival any well-planned educational prep program. Absolutely. And it would be so much more relatable yes. because you would have the teachers that were part of the studies, that were yes. part of the conversations, and they would get direct, as you say, data reviews mm-hmm. back to them. I mean, the feedback would be incredible. Wouldn't it? And real time, and it would also be not very intimidating, either. I I wonder too about, you know, you have principals and superintendents, and you know, even supervising teachers assessing you, and of course they come from a place of power. Of course, Mm -hmm. that's intimidating. You have student teachers that want to learn from you, that then give you feedback. Right. Yeah, I think that's. Did you just come up with that? That's amazing, Mary. I I did. I was just thinking. I was just like. Why are we not doing, the answers are all there. Why are we not doing for our teachers what we do with our students? It would be amazing. It would be amazing. We could have virtual field trips where we could literally create like scenarios, hallway changes, observations, and literally take our teachers on opportunities and be like, okay, talk to us. Tell us what you see. How would you solve it? How would you fix it? Let's just get into the thick of it. And it would be so much more amazing than taking English language arts 101. Here's how you teach a child to read. That's great. But the reality is, is that Johnny is going to be climbing the bookshelf when you pull out your alphabet cards. What are you going to do? <laughs> Seriously. What are you, you going to do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really love that idea. And I just think it creates the community and I can just say it's all the investment. Mm-hmm. And I think I should really ask you to clarify what the one-minute meeting is. We keep talking about it. What is the one-minute meeting for our listeners? Absolutely. The one-minute meeting is an opportunity for school leaders, for teacher leaders, for educators to take one minute to glean amazing feedback from your students by asking them three questions. The first question is, how are you today? making sure that you're having a connection with students to tap into their social emotional, to help them ground their day and to be able to experience and communicate how they're feeling, what they're thinking. The second question is, what is your biggest celebration from the past nine weeks or the past semester? It gives you an intimate um, sort of window into what students feel are their celebrations, their high moments, their wins. And the third question is, what is your greatest challenge from the past nine weeks or this semester? And it gives you an opportunity to find out what they're struggling with, what they consider a challenge. And let me tell you, all of the answers are not academic. Some of the answers Mm -hmm. give you a beautiful perspective about their world. But the answers and the data that is gleaned from asking every child in the building for one minute, the responses to these questions gives you amazing data 
and an awesome opportunity to change practice and to change pedagogy in favor of what your students are really looking for and things they need to engage. And how often are you having these meetings with the kids? I did these once a quarter. So every nine weeks, our school mm. year is split up to 180 days and three or four 90-minute, a 90-day uh, semester. So I would ask them every quarter. And it was amazing to see, yes, even five-year-olds can be a part of the one-minute meeting. And even in the book, I have opportunities where students who have disabilities or students who have exceptionalities are able to engage in the process. And it really is an opportunity to teach students how to name and choose their emotional state, but also it gives them a voice. It gives them a voice to tell you, the educator, what they are experiencing and what they are seeing in the classroom, in the hallways, on the playground, in the cafeteria. And it's amazing to be able to take their feedback and their words and make change for the building. Yeah. And I think we keep hearing it over and over. It's the assumptions that we fall down on, mm-hmm. assuming we know what's best as principals for our teachers, right? assuming we know what's best as teachers for our students, assuming you know, we know what's best as parents for our kids, you know, and I keep hearing it through every conversation I've done, just talk to the person. Yes. Why are we not doing that? Why is that such a novel idea? to actually just go and ask the person that you're creating the program for, mm-hmm. what do they want? And, and I will say, Laura, I think it's because e-communication has made it easy for leaders and educators, I'm going to say people, humans, to hide mm. behind a screen. Mm. I literally have 7 billion people walking around in my pocket. And if I want to connect with them or if I want to communicate with them or if I want to collaborate with them, I can do so. I can find an app to make that happen. Mm. So we remove the humanality, the humanness of education because we believe that when these mandates come down and our superintendent tells us to do something and this new math program comes out, I send it out. I may have one staff meeting and a good training and I'm like, good luck. That's not, that's not it. No. There's nothing that's going to replace sitting in front of you and hearing your story, watching your body language, listening to your tone and understanding that you're either confident about this or you're a little nervous about this Mm. and then making the necessary adjustments or putting the resources in place to make sure you're successful. No email is ever going to do that. No tweet is ever going to do that. An outside trainer is never going to do that because they don't know you. They know that you're a number on the roster, right? But as a principal, you have to encourage people and people have to see you going to individuals and talking to them. And I'll tell you, Laura, we did the one minute meeting for for two years straight. By the second round of one minute meetings, I had teachers who I would walk down the hall and I would do observations and they'd be in the back of their classroom and I would ask them what they're doing. And they're saying, we just had a test and I'm doing a one minute meeting to find out why 18% of my students missed question number 16. I need to find out if I didn't teach it correctly. And I'm doing that by asking the student. Never mandated a teacher to do it. Never asked them to do it. But they saw the power in it and they adopted that. If teachers don't see leaders modeling the way, how can we expect them to take on that face-to-face, to have crucial conversations, to open the door and talk to a teacher across the hall if you don't see it mm-hmm. being done. It's not going to happen. No. 
And I think the other thing too is that the feedback's going somewhere. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Doing that over and over, you know, why would I bother giving you all the information if it's purely to tick a box? So how do you show your students and your staff that you are listening uh-huh. and that you are taking action mm-hmm. on the information you're getting? So this was my favorite part. So it was two-tiered. It happened school-wide and it also happened individually. After we got done with those one-minute meetings, we would bring that data back and we would start to create themes. And in the book, I give you some tools in order to be able to extrapolate those themes. And we started looking and we said, okay, students are experiencing celebrations here and they're experiencing challenges here. and These are some individual tweaks we need to make. We would share that feedback, not only in a staff meeting, and I don't mean granular feedback. I mean, overarching themes and things that we were seeing overall within grade levels. We did two things. We not only shared that information school-wide, when I say staff meeting, those types of things, we also made little ticker sheets. So we said, when we asked the second grade students their biggest celebrations, here's what they talked about. Boom, 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 boom. Here were their challenges. Boom, 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 boom. We made a poster of those challenges and those celebrations, and we posted them in the room where the second grade teachers would have their PLTs. Hmm. So then what happens when you're planning? What happens when you're looking at exercises? What happens when you're making seating charts? Because in the book, I talk about one of the challenges for one of my fourth graders was Tommy. And I said, how is Tommy, you know, your greatest challenge from this nine weeks? And she says, Dr. Hemphill, I have told the teacher that he cheats off my test. I've told the teacher he kicks me under the desk. I've told the teachers he's been bothering me and nobody's done anything. We literally made a seating change. We moved Tommy away from that student. And we talked to Tommy's parents and we set those both up for success. Literally their scores increased by 30% because we shared that granular data. And not only did we put the posters up in the PLT room, but we shared those celebrations with our parents and our community members. So when I would do calls home or when I would do PTO meetings and have the parents come in, I would say, listen, your third graders, here's what they're excited about. Here's what they are challenged with. And here are the changes we made as a school. And I'd share that with our superintendent, with our parents, and with other principals. Students saw that we were talking about their feedback. Mm. They saw changes in their feedback. And because they knew that their voice mattered, and then they would see change, they were like, Dr. Hemp, I would literally walk down the hall, Dr. Hemp, when are you doing one-minute meetings again? Because I have a list of things I really need to talk to you about. <laughs> yeah. And I, they, they were stakeholders. That's the huge. best investment we made was into them. And when they saw, saw that they literally had a voice at the table, they were like, it's on now. We, we're about to do this thing. Yeah. I want to quote you back to you, if that's okay. 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 <laughs> so right. there's a part of this book that you say, the situation contrasts with the world beyond the school where young people have increasing economic power social maturity, funds of informal knowledge derived from the rich leisure media culture surrounding them and a greater sense of entitlement. If they fail to engage their students, schools will miss out on valuable opportunities to develop young people's skills, improve provisions and promote citizens and social inclusion. And I love this because it's exactly what you were just saying. Students and people, once they leave the school, have so much power. And yet when they're in school, we quash their power so much so that we can have all the power as educators and we can take up all the power in the room. Mm-hmm. And 
it's not the real world. Mm-mm. It's a way to control. It's mm-hmm. a way to get things done. It's a way to tick boxes. Mm-hmm. But it's not the real world because, as you said, you have seven billion people in your pocket at any one time. You are powerful. You can connect with anyone you want mm-hmm. to. You can make anything happen if you want to. Yeah. We can see that through social media. Why are we not doing this on a greater scale? We're scared. There's mm. there's a fear. There's a fear. So what is happening is COVID has exacerbated and hyper-visualized the need for something drastic to happen in education. Yeah. So for the first time, a whole world's looking at educators and we're like, what are they going to do? Oh my goodness, mm-hmm. is this what it's like? Oh my gosh, they don't have summers off. Oh my goodness, is this what they deal with for every eight hours a day? So we have a great opportunity and there's a shift happening. There's a shift happening because we are seeing sort of our greats, our veterans, our masterminds sort of move into retirement and move out of the educational field. And then there's this great pivot and this amazing increase in these innovative educators who are thinking, and they're like, we're not even going to think outside the box. We're getting rid of the box. We're going to invite these elephants to dance that we have been tiptoeing around for years to do it differently. And I feel like it's time. Mm. There's, there's, there's an innovative shift. We talked about and admired innovation and education for years and COVID helped us define what it could possibly look like. And so as we begin to see leaders nationally, internationally, and locally sort of stand up and say, this barrier that we've had between the world and school needs to be crushed and obliterated in order for students to understand and ready them for the real world. We need to be teaching them financial literacy. We need to talk to them about how to name their emotion and why mental health matters. We need to teach them diversity, equity, and inclusion, not just tolerance. When we are able to do that and do it in a way that says, yes, reading, writing, and arithmetic are very important, but I cannot remember the last time I used E equals MC squared, like at Walmart Mm -hmm. or the grocery store. Mm -hmm. But what I did have to use at Walmart was the opportunity to be compassionate, to be kind, to understand the human condition, to experience empathy when I see somebody who can't pay for their groceries, when I took sympathy for a single mom who is out there trying to raise four children at home with two laptop devices, and she herself is an essential worker, That's what I need. I need global citizens who are able to walk through this world and be amazing human beings. I don't need individuals who know that the thesis of a paper has to be the first sentence with a capital letter and a period and make sure your APA citations are correct. Mm -hmm. I need you to be an amazing human. Yes. And also one that is able to navigate, well, an online world. Yes. Digitally and responsibly. I'd love to hear what you think about this. We in Victoria, it is it is banned to have your phones at school in the classroom now. Oh, my. So, which I understand from the online bullying. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where it's coming from. Prior to going on maternity leave, it wasn't, it was frowned upon, especially in the junior levels and the senior levels. I never minded. Mm-hmm. I would just tell them to have their phones on their desk so I always knew where it was. And oftentimes they'd just take photos of our board notes so they could be active in, actively involved rather than right. things down. So that's kind of how I, I never was really particularly bothered. 
But now they're banned. I'm going to go back into the classroom and they are completely banned. You can't have them. And I know that it's fear. I understand that it's fear. But it's like where they're not giving them the digital literacy that they need to mm-hmm. be able to navigate a digital world that they've been, in Victoria at least, they're just coming out of, but mm-hmm. they've been locked in for months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. How do we do that? Because I under- I do understand the fear. I see the fear. And I also, a lot of that fear I think for me is the fact that I don't feel as though I'm an expert. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of teachers like to come into the classroom knowing it all mm-hmm. or at least having the plan or seeing the end goal. And I don't know it all. Right. I didn't grow up a digital native, mm-hmm. you know. I didn't. It's, it's social media has come. I was at university when it sort of came, came, you know, to be a big thing. Right. What do we do? How do we tackle this? So one of the big things is to recognize that we don't know it all. So mm. we are growing up with our students or our students are growing up with devices in their hand, in their face, in their environment. So they're just going to know more by osmosis. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I always encourage students and teachers and schools to do, establish your true tech north. Okay. So when you think about yourself as a person and you think about your true north, your true north is when you are pointed in the direction of your purpose and your passion and you are operating in your gift and you are in that moment. And you're like, you know what? I was born to do this. So I'm sure you feel like that when you are teaching and mm-hmm. when you're doing this podcast and when you are connecting with great, amazing individuals that bring just awesome ideas to education, I see you light up. Yeah. Like I know that's your true north. Yeah. Your true tech north is when you decide, I'm going to use Instagram for the purpose of inspiring and motivating individuals to feel better about themselves, to live limitlessly, and to understand that they don't have to live under the limits of what society gives them. And I'm not going to post, I'm not going to retweet, I'm not going to send, and I'm not going to share anything that doesn't uplift individuals. You have to decide as a teacher, what is your true tech north in this classroom? You have to decide as a principal, what is your true tech north in this building? And I encourage superintendents, when I look at my district, what is our true tech north? What is it going to happen when we put devices in the hands of students and teachers? And how do we want to empower them Mm -hmm. to use it responsibly and use it digitally? If you do not have a true tech north, then that means all software is awesome. All programs are amazing. You're downloading all this. You're expecting your teachers to be expert on every piece of tech you give them. And students are confused because the teachers are like, I just learned this in PD yesterday and now I'm supposed to be doing a lesson plan on it today. And I'm not a robot. Mm. Like I had to sleep today. I had to feed my children. I had to like go work out. Mm -hmm. If we don't decide our true tech north, then the fear is going to mount because there are hundreds of thousands of apps created every week. There's billions of people on the internet. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody has access. And as long as we let that fear rule us, what we will find is that when we do put these back in the hands of our children, it will be too late. Yeah. We'll be 10 years behind versus two years behind because we didn't allow them to stand and teach us. We didn't allow them to say, I just ran up on this website and how do I avoid? We just got to have some real conversations. Yeah. But as long as we let fear sort of be the captain of this ship, 
we're going to keep running into icebergs. Yeah. It was interesting. I was talking to a psychologist friend of mine the other day and she was saying that we don't have enough um, support really for the emotional, mm-hmm. you know, the emotional toolkits are not as good as she would like them to be. Mm-hmm. And I was saying mm-hmm. that we don't really have much curriculum around the real life big situations in life that will come. Yeah. It will yeah, come. Sure. Death will come. You will, you will experience mm-hmm. that at some point in your life, whether it's really tragic or it's something that you're expecting, you will experience mm-hmm. that. And a friend of mine I spoke to said she actually did an exchange in America and they had for I think a year and they chose their subjects, real life subjects, and she chose a subject mm-hmm. around death. Oh, wow. And it was about, but it was about the financial implications of death. So how do you deal with a funeral? How do you organize that? What kind of money Mm -hmm. should you get insurance? Mm -hmm. Do you not get insurance? But also it then had the fact that we need to normalize that one certain type of death deserves grief when one doesn't, you know, Mm. like, you know, if you lose a parent, you can grieve this much. But if you lose a grandparent, you don't get to grieve as much because they're older and they were always going to go before you. Or if you, mm. you know, it's all of this sort of stuff that we yeah. seem to put mandates on the amount of grief that we then give based on certain situations yeah. as well. You know, uh-huh. a relationship, we don't see that as imp- as important as the death of, of an individual, but maybe it is, the death of a dream. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering where those sorts of things fit because we're all going to experience those things and are we really equipping our students for that that's very that's so one of the things I think that needs to happen is there's got to be an overhaul of when we look at the curriculum and we look at our state standards we've kind of been I hate to say in a rut I'll say we've been in a groove how about that we've been in a groove (laughs) with what we create because it feels good so if you think about it, Laura, we do not go to the grocery store the same way we used to go to the grocery store in the 1900s, the 1950s, the 2000s. Like if I wanted to, I could go on Amazon or I could go on my local grocery store and I could type in what I need and my mm-hmm. groceries could show up at my door or I could just drive my mm. car and somebody will bring them out. We don't bank the same way. Healthcare is not the same way. This pandemic would look totally different if it was the 1918 flu pandemic, right? So why are we not doing education differently? At some point, they decided mm-hmm. horses are not great. We can create cars now. Putting your money in a sock in the mattress is not great. We have banks now. We haven't had that pivotal moment in education mm. where we are saying the overall overhaul mm. happens now. We need to get to that point. And it's going to take people, it, individuals, educators in Australia and in Africa and in North America and in Pan-Asia and in Europe, really saying now is the time. I think we've had Mm. little spots of it, right? Like little glimmers of hope and little shiny spots, but it needs to be over. And it starts with policy. It starts with elected officials. It starts with local conversation. That's the type of change when it's strategic and when it's longitudinal that will make an impact in the classroom. Do you think the people that have the greatest power in government have enough understanding of what's going on in the classroom? Absolutely not. (laughs) Absolutely not. When, and again, when you have individuals who are making decisions for classrooms and the last time they were in a classroom was in high school, Mm. 
and the average age of elected officials is 56, mm. create a panel and have a kindergartner, first grader, second grader, 12th grader, first grade teacher, second grade teacher, third grade teacher, high school principal. Have When you get those people in the positions to inform and educate change, that's when we'll see what needs to happen in education. But as long as we have antiquated ideals mm-hmm. and a misunderstanding of the realities of what our students are facing, we will continue to have the gaps. My friend who did a degree in education said that <laughs> they did some kind of assignment where they identified that the school system as it is was actually formed in the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Literally. And the grades that I was talking about earlier, those were originally used for meat. Grade A meat. <laughs> I can't even get my head around that. And they're using them for schools. We're now using them to grade students. It's It doesn't work. No. It's, it, it's, it's not even applicable anymore. No. So. So we hear about like Finland, for example, mm-hmm. a country that is always held up for having this incredible education system. And mm-hmm. the way I look at it, it's not so much about the system as the country and the society and the culture and the belief in education. That's how I always see it. So we have, I'm sure it's, I'm not quite sure what the scoring is in America, but we have scores Mm -hmm. here that allow you to get into university and it's ultimately a popularity contest. So med, you know, is you have to get out of of 99.95, you have to get 99 because obviously they can only, yeah, they can only take the top tier Right. Because there's not enough places. They right. In Finland, in order to become a teacher, you have to get the equivalent of what you would have to get in med here. Mm-hmm. So what it mm-hmm. shows to me is that society values education and teaching at the yeah. same level that we value in Western, you know, in certainly Australia, I'll say, I'm sure that's the same in America, that we value medicine and doctors and mm-hmm. surgeons. Mm-hmm. And so you don't question what your doctor says often you go to your doctor and you think that they are the point of knowledge and you're going to absolutely their opinion we as teachers are constantly having to explain ourselves and to come back and and show that we're doing the right thing we are not always given the same level of respect and trust I think mm-hmm. that some of these mm-hmm. other questions are given and what I see in Finland every documentary I've ever seen is that people society doesn't question they trust that the teachers have the best interest for their kids, that they are dedicated, society values them. It's seen purely in the scores that they have mm-hmm. to get. So it's all well and good to go to Finland and see what they're doing in the classroom. But to me, it's so much bigger than the classroom there. It is. How, how do we do that? So you hit the nail on the head, Laura. Look at any country and look at what they spend their money on and you will find what they value. Mm. So when the tweet came across my phone Mm -hmm. that an American football player Mm. was going to get paid $250 million a year to carry a ball up and down the field, I know what America values because teachers are getting paid between 32 and 36,000 for their first year of teaching. Finland, just as you said, they value education. So they have put money Mm. into 
that they have coveted that they put their teachers on a pedestal it is evident that they believe in education and they've thought enough about the system to where they don't have five-year-olds entering school they wait till seven they don't have over representation of exceptional children because they believe in the unique pathways of the way students lead they put the best and the brightest in those classrooms because their children are their future you're going to get an amazing system there. They're not only innovative in their practice, they're innovative in their preparation. Yes. And there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from that. I know in America for sure, and I'm sure in Australia. So The last thing I wanted to ask you is what's your role now? Oh, <laughs> so um, I, do, I truly believe in the moniker of Limitless. So at this point, I am the first state director for North Carolina Computer Science and K-12 Education. And I'm also the CEO of the Limitless Lady and the Limitless Leader program. And the idea of the Limitless Lifestyle, you put this, this is your Instagram handle, uh -huh. it's all about being limitless. So what does it actually mean to be limitless to you? To be limitless means that you are being your best self and living outside the limits of what society tells you you can be and should be. Limitless leaders show up as their best selves in their community, in their career, or in their company. And they truly believe in the impact of people, really taking them from point A to point B and showing them the impact that they're able to make, not only within their own lives, but on others as well. Thank you so much, Mary, for spending all this time with me and giving me so much so thought to think about. I really appreciate it. You're so well, Laura. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed the show, please share it on social media or to the people directly that you think would enjoy it. Subscribe to the show, rate and review it. All of those things really help get people to find the show if they haven't heard of it before. Thank you again for being here. I really appreciate you and have an amazing day.